Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast. We're your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, we explore a different perspective on or experience of depression because it varies in form and severity, affecting us differently. Our guests share intimate details of their struggles, coping strategies, and recovery. We keep it real because the struggle is real. We keep it hopeful because there is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We're not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and know that talking about the illness reduces stigma and humanizes the experience, making it safer and easier to ask for needed support. You are far from alone. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. If you live with depression like us and many of the people who listen to this podcast, it's pretty much guaranteed that you've been told a lot of things you should do over the years. Things along the full advice spectrum, from call your doctor, consider meds, or talk with a therapist, to go outside, get some fresh air and sunshine, exercise or meditate, to downright annoying suggestions like just snap out of it or think happy thoughts. Today's guest, Catherine Ponte, turns that kind of advice on its head. She wrote an article called Coping with Mental Illness, What Not to Do. Since we're always on the lookout for something different, we read it, learned from it, and reached out to Catherine, who is a huge believer that sharing our struggles benefits not only the people that hear us, but our own recovery as well. I have been living with severe bipolar 1 disorder for over 15 years. I've had five severe manic episodes, three involuntary hospitalizations, and an arrest for something I did while I was manic. Um, And everybody should know that there is no cure for many mental illnesses. And so I recognize that. So by being in recovery, I mean that I'm able to manage my condition so that it doesn't interfere with um, key activities in my life, such as pursuing a career, having good family relationships, and being happy. Recovery is seldom, if ever, a straight path or a quick fix, and it certainly wasn't for Catherine. Just like with meds, it can take a while to find the right support team, including the right therapist or doctor. One of the things that had been keeping me back was my psychiatrist. She had very diminished expectations for me as I had a condition, and she kept me on a highly sedating uh, medication regimen, um, which for anyone on bipolar uh, might know um, the impact of 600 milligrams of Seroquel a night, um, which kept me sleeping 14 hours a day, and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do anything on that medication regimen, but she refused to change it. So after five years, Catherine changed it. She sent an email to her psychiatrist firing her and began a different and much more successful recovery plan. Her new doctor is a three-hour round trip from her home, but she views the inconvenience as a small price to pay to get her life back. Uh, on the first, very first uh, appointment, he changed my medication regimen so that um, I went from in, in about a week, two weeks. I mean, changes can happen very quickly if you have the right treatment. I went from about two weeks from sleeping 14 hours a day to sleeping 10 hours a day. Um, 
when I saw him, I was obese. In about a year, year and a half, I lost 71 pounds. And that was simply from a medication regimen change. It was with that psychiatrist that Catherine worked up a list of six things to not do when coping with mental illness. It started as an idea she had for an article on self-care. And he's like, well, a lot of people know about those things. You know, let's talk about the things that really hold people back. You know, that really can make it very difficult to benefit from some of those coping strategies that people turn to to help with their conditions. Catherine says compiling the list brought feelings of regret and guilt as she realized it wasn't just her bipolar holding her back, but some of her own actions and beliefs as well. And I could have, like, locked it away and not shared it with anyone, but I want to share it. I want to, you know, look back and admit to the things that I've done wrong, um, that I could have done better, with the hopes that some people will recognize in that list some of their activities, that they're doing the same thing, maybe. We'll run through the list and also link to Catherine's article, so you can reread it or print it if you want. We're going to start with the idea that being ambivalent about your treatment can impact its effectiveness. I wasn't giving it my all. I wasn't giving the treatment the support that it needed. I was very skeptical. I was at a point where I thought nothing's ever going to work. Nothing will ever change. I will take these medications. I will take this therapy because this is what I'm supposed to do. And maybe it will help a little, but it won't really change my life. It won't lead me to where I want to be. So I didn't do, I'd stay in bed. Interesting. It's such a double, uh, you know, sided message because there's the part that you think, oh, I can't believe I impeded my own recovery. And then you also realize, yay, I can help my own recovery. You know, it's up to the person with the condition to say, I'm ready. I've had enough. I've reached a point where I've got to do something about it. I've got to give it everything that I have. And I've got to see if this works out. Because I was really at the point when I reached my breaking point, either I die or I live. And if I'm going to live, I don't want to live this life of stability. I want to live a life of recovery. And, you know, I reached that realization because I finally realized that I couldn't continue to live the life that I had been living. Maybe you've realized the need to take an active role in your own recovery a long time ago or learned it from a therapist. But we bet a lot of people haven't. On one hand, it seems almost obvious. But on the other, it could be a recovery game changer. Once I saw that treatment improving, I said, okay, now I have to do my part. I have to work harder and harder. I have to keep up with these treatment improvements. When you say I want A, B, C, then you take more ownership in your treatment because you have a stake in it now. You have to help that treatment have the best outcomes. Catherine makes the distinction that it's one thing to reach recovery and another to stay in it. You're still going to have these struggles, but you have to work really hard to reach recovery. You have to believe in yourself. You have to say, I can do it. 
You have to look to your support network for support. Do whatever it takes to get that treatment that gives you confidence that you can reach your goals. You have to practice shared decision-making with your doctors, which is where you all have a say in your treatment. It is really hard, but with the right combination, with the right formula, with you know, the right things aligning, you can do it. And you can do it you know, in a relatively short period of time. Another harmful behavior to avoid is denial. When I was diagnosed, images flashed through my mind. I saw stigma. I saw everything that stigma says about people with mental illness. You know, the loss of my dreams, the inability to pursue my career, the um, possibly jeopardizing my family plans, lost friends, what would people think of me, how would they regard me. So I didn't want to turn into that person. And so I lived for six years being untreated until I could no longer deny that I did indeed have a condition. Another behavior to avoid is dismissal. A big point of dismissal is I refused any help from my friends and family. My husband was always concerned. My mother was frantic. She knew that I wasn't well, and she knew that I wasn't doing anything about it. Which leads to the next behavior on Catherine's list. That flows into ignorance about me wanting to know as little about this condition really as I could because I didn't want to come to that conclusion that everyone else had arrived at, that I did indeed have a condition and I did indeed need help. Another common behavior that interferes with recovery and coping is non-adherence. You know, I was on medication, I was getting treated, I was getting better and better. The symptoms went away, and so I thought it's time to stop taking the medication. And that was awful. Now, I'm actually on way more medications than I like to be on. I'm on lithium, latuda, lamictal, Seroquel, Vyvanse, Synthroid. Um, Even though I'm doing well, these medications are a daily reminder to me that I'm not well. The last obstacle to recovery Catherine lists is recklessness, a word we hear a lot in relation to bipolar disorder. This story is from a time Catherine demanded to be taken off a med with bad side effects. It was with her early psychiatrist. Um, A very high percentage of people with bipolar have been incarcerated or jailed and often for for acts they've committed while manic. And my doctor told me that medication noncompliance is the number one reason for relapse can have very serious consequences. You know, it was a very hard lesson, hard, hard lesson to learn. And the other time with recklessness, a few times, which led to hospitalizations. Commenting on that list, Catherine's doctor writes, Catherine's candid description of times she more than once got in her own way, possibly undermining her own treatment goals, is far from unusual, and I suspect will sound familiar to many who struggle either first or second hand with chronic mental health conditions. By definition, it's awfully hard, if not impossible, to recognize blind spots. From 2000 to 2016, I was stuck, and I never thought that I was going to get unstuck. I thought that was it. I thought this was my life until I started believing otherwise, until I started seeing, believing other people 
seeing their examples, connecting with them, sharing our experiences, figuring out what works, what doesn't, how do I get over this hurdle, sharing those experiences with other people really, really helped me to get to where I'm at right now. But it's a huge struggle. It's a huge struggle to overcome depression because depression is so debilitating. It is such a difficult thing to overcome. And you have to believe in yourself. I think it really starts with self-love. You have to love yourself. You have to believe that you are worthy, you deserve more, and you can achieve more, and you can do better. You can have a better life. You can be happy again. Catherine so believes in the power of peer support that she has started an online community called Four Like Minds. One really cool feature is a platform specifically for supporters of people with mental health challenges, where they can share with each other what works, what helps, and what makes things worse. We'll link to that site as well as to Catherine's article, Coping with Mental Illness, What Not to Do. And for those of you not on our social media, we want to share our big announcement that this is the second anniversary of Giving Voice to Depression. (laughs) Whoop, whoop, indeed. Our first year, this podcast had 16,000 plays. And now, a year later, our weekly episodes have been played more than 113,000 times. (laughs) So thank you for listening. And please help spread our guest stories of resilience and hope. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please head to our website, givingvoicetodepression.com, and click the Sponsor Us tab. Thank you, Catherine, for your insights and for your optimism. Absolutely. We need both. I love you, Terry. I love you too, bud. Thank you. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.